At 6 p.m. on April 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was standing outside his hotel room, speaking with Reverend Jesse Jackson, who was on the level below. A minute later, a shot rang out. Martin Luther King Jr. was shot in the face and rushed to a hospital where he died an hour later. The night before, Martin Luther King Jr. gave one of his greatest speech performances, where he prophetically said, Like anybody, I would like to live. A long life, longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. At the same time, Robert Francis Kennedy, who went by RFK, the former president, John F. Kennedy's younger brother, was giving a speech at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana. It was his first day on the campaign trail for the 1968 Democratic presidential nomination. He spoke about domestic issues, the Vietnam War, and racism. His campaign started strong as he was met with the crowd's approval. One African-American student sitting in the audience raised a question. The student asked, Your speech implies that you're placing a great deal of faith in white America. Is that faith justified? Kennedy answered, Yes, faith in black America is justified too, although there are extremists on both sides. Kennedy finished answering questions and proceeded to his plane for his third and final stop of the day, Indianapolis, Indiana. Before boarding his plane, RFK learned that Martin Luther King Jr. had been shot and was in critical condition. Kennedy was shocked and saddened at the news. He told a reporter that he had just told that kid about extremists on both sides, and then some man just shot their spiritual leader. Kennedy took a short flight from Muncie, located just 66 miles outside of Indianapolis. When he landed, he was told Martin Luther King Jr. was dead. According to reporter John J. Lindsay, Kennedy seemed to shrink back as though struck physically and put his hands to his face, saying, Oh God, when is the violence going to stop? Perhaps bringing back one of the darkest times in his life, when on November 22, 1963, J. Edgar Hoover coldly told him that his brother, President John F. Kennedy, had been shot and killed in Dallas. While riding over to his destination, 17th and Broadway, in the heart of Indianapolis's African-American ghetto, he scribbled down some notes on a card. Many of Kennedy's campaign representatives and city officials, including the Indianapolis mayor, who considered the area too dangerous for a rally, urged Kennedy to cancel the campaign stop. Kennedy declined, even though the city police refused to escort him there. Both Kennedy's press secretary and speechwriter drafted notes immediately before the rally for Kennedy to use, but Kennedy refused. Instead, he turned to the cards he had handwritten on the ride over. The Indianapolis police again warned Kennedy that the police could not provide protection for the senator should a riot erupt. Nevertheless, he proceeded as a messenger of peace in a time soon to become hot with rage. Reaching the neighborhood, Kennedy realized the boisterous, mostly African-American crowd was unaware of King's death. Climbing onto the back of a flatbed truck meant as an impromptu speech stand while wearing his late brother John F. Kennedy's overcoat. Robert looked at the crowd. 
I have some very sad news for all of you, and I think uh, sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world. And that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering the evidence evidently is that there were white people who were responsible, you can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country in greater polarization black people amongst blacks and white amongst whites filled with hatred toward one another or we can make an effort as Martin Luther King did to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand compassion and love for those of you who are black and are tempted to fill with be filled with hatred and mistrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling I had a member of my family killed but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort in the United States. We have to make an effort to understand, to get beyond or go beyond these rather difficult times. A favorite poem, I, my favorite poet was Aeschylus. He once wrote, even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own day despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God what we need in the United States is not division what we need in the United States is not hatred what we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black. We can do well in this country. We will have difficult times. We've had difficult times in the past, but we will, and we will have difficult times in the future. It is not the end of violence. It is not the end of lawlessness. And it's not the end of disorder. But the vast majority of white people 
of the vast majority of black people in this country want to live together, want to improve the quality of our life, and want justice for all human beings that abide in our land. With dedicate ourselves to what the Greeks wrote so many years ago, to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world. Let us dedicate ourselves to that and say a prayer for our country and for our people. Thank you very much. The speech was completely heartfelt and genuine. Kennedy, instead of using one of his speechwriters, connected with the audience and related with them on the death of his brother, something Kennedy's aides later said they were shocked by, that he had never spoken of his brother's death in public. Quoting the ancient Greek playwright Aeschylus, who Robert had become acquainted with through his brother's widow, Jackie Kennedy, during his time grieving, Kennedy also delivered one of his best-remembered remarks that still stands to this day. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence or lawlessness, but is love and wisdom and compassion towards one another and a feeling of justice towards those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black. Kennedy was emphasizing that what the United States needed was unity and understanding of one another, regardless of race or socioeconomic class. He was echoing the words of the late Martin Luther King Jr. He encouraged the country to dedicate ourselves to what the Greeks wrote so many years ago to tame the savageness of man, and to make gentle the life of this world. He finished by asking the audience members to pray for our country and our people. Rather than exploding in anger at the tragic news of King's death, the crowd exploded in applause and enthusiasm for a second time, before dispersing quietly. Indianapolis remained calm that night, when virtually every major city in the United States erupted in violence. This speech has been called one of the greatest public addresses of the modern era. Former U.S. Congressman Joe Scarborough said that the speech prompted him to enter the public service. Political commentator Joe Klein has called it, Politics in its grandest form and highest purpose. It marked the end of an era before political life was taken over by consultants and pollsters. Quote, It was such a risky thing for him to do as well, because he was confronting a crowd that was ready to retaliate for the death of Martin Luther King, but he was ready to confront any retaliation or anger that people might have felt over King's death that took a certain amount of courage and spiritual power and groundedness, end quote, says Aaron Bryant, National Museum of African American History and Culture. After the speech, Kennedy reached his room in the Marat Hotel. There was a meeting waiting for him with 14 local black leaders. The meeting had been arranged before the assassination took place. The group had debated among themselves as to whether they should hold the meeting. Kennedy eventually arrived, and the conversations quickly became heated as the leaders accused him of being an unreliable member of the white establishment. He lost his temper, saying, I don't need all this aggravation. I could sit next to my swimming pool, you know. God's been real good to me, and I really don't need anything. But I just feel that if he's been good to me, I should try to put something back in. And you all call yourselves leaders, and you've been moaning and groaning about personal problems. You haven't once talked about your own people. The meeting ended with most attendees pledging their support to Kennedy's campaign. One of them later acknowledged that Kennedy was completely sympathetic and understanding. The 14 convinced Kennedy, who had decided to suspend his presidential campaign, to make a final appearance in Cleveland the following day, perhaps to calm tension, as he had just done in Indianapolis. Later, he called King's widow Coretta Scott King in Atlanta. 
Kennedy promised her that he would help any way he could. After the call, he ordered three more telephones to be installed in the King residence for King and her family to be able to answer the flood of calls they received, as well as a call center in Atlanta for King's family to use. She said she needed a plane to carry her husband's body from Memphis to Atlanta, and he immediately promised to provide her one. Coretta Scott King asked Robert Kennedy and his wife Ethel Kennedy to attend Martin Luther King Jr.'s funeral, which they did, another bold move as even the president Lyndon B. Johnson didn't go, out of fear of provoking a riot. Johnson sent his vice president and Kennedy's opponent in the future presidential race, Hubert Humphrey, on his behalf. Meanwhile, African-American anger erupted in rioting across more than 100 American cities, with deaths totaling 43, over 3,000 injured and 20,000 arrests. Johnson was not surprised by the riots, and he reportedly said, What did you expect? I don't know why we're so surprised. When you put your foot on a man's neck and hold him down for 300 years, and then you let him up, what's he going to do? He's going to knock your block off. President Lyndon B. Johnson tried to quell the riots by making several phone calls to civil rights leaders, mayors, and governors across the United States, and told politicians that they should warn the police against using unwarranted use of force. But his efforts didn't work out. I'm not getting through, Johnson told his aides. They're all holding up like generals in a dugout, ready to watch a war. The next day, Kennedy received a speech from his speechwriters. He reviewed it and deeply revised it, inserting what he saw as America's largest problem. Quote, that more and more people are turning to violence. And in the last analysis, it's going to destroy our country, end quote. When Kennedy's plane landed in Cleveland, the police warned him of possible assassins waiting for him. One was allegedly waiting in a church steeple across the hotel where he would give his speech. Kennedy's aides suggested he wait while they go and check it out to make sure everything's okay. He angrily retorted, no, we'll never stop for that kind of threat. Later, the aides requested they close the blinds and Kennedy ordered them open by saying, if they're going to shoot, they'll shoot. On the mindless menace of violence, April 5th, Kennedy spoke for only 10 minutes. Kennedy's speech focused on violence and how it was destroying America, a violence that is deep-rooted and cultural, one coming from everything from the Vietnam War to racism to the violence of the protesters. This time in American history has come down to be known as the turbulence of 1968. In January of that year, the Tet Offensive took place where any hopes for ending the Vietnam War were diminished. Anti-war protesters began filling the streets in the months before MLK's assassination. The Black Panther movement was becoming popular, which made the assassination of MLK extra vile. MLK had been a proponent of peaceful protest. The Black Panther movement and other African-American leaders, such as Malcolm X, had preached violence in defense of themselves. Kennedy, in his speech, alluded to prejudiced rhetoric common by other political leaders, such as presidential nominee George Wallace, who notoriously said in a former electoral campaign, In the name of the greatest people that have ever trod this earth, I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny. And I say, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Kennedy cautioned that when a society tries to teach people to hate each other, or that another man is a lesser man, it will always lead to violence. As Kennedy left the stage, several women were in tears. He took no questions from the audience and was given a standing ovation. Kennedy's On the Mindless Menace of Violence was and has been largely overshadowed by his off-the-cuff remarks the night of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. After Kennedy gave his Cleveland speech, he returned to Washington, D.C. From the air, he could see smoke hovering over the city neighborhoods. Upon landing, Kennedy proposed driving into the riot zone to calm down the mobs, saying, I think I can do something with these people. Most of his aides were shocked at the idea. 
Fred Dutton, attempting to delay, suggested that Kennedy inform Mayor Walter Washington of his plans as a courtesy. John Bartlow Martin told him that little could be done while people were still rioting and that he would appear to be grandstanding. Kennedy then reluctantly went home. Kennedy returned to Indiana and on April 10th delivered his third and final speech inspired by King's death. Moving past his previous calls for compassion and an end to violence, he admonished whites to accept and welcome blacks into American society. Kennedy spent the next two months building a coalition on liberal populism, emphasizing racial equality and economic justice, mirroring the ideology of Martin Luther King Jr. He focused specifically on youth engagement. During a speech given at the Indiana University Medical School, Kennedy was asked, where are we going to get this money to pay for all these new programs you're proposing? Kennedy replied to the medical students who were poised to enter lucrative careers from you. 63 days after his speech on 17th and Broadway, he won a much needed and stunning victory in the California primary and was giving a speech. After his congratulatory speech, his aides rushed him through the kitchen to avoid the crowds. Kennedy, who was adored by his supporters, would often stop to shake hands with them. Kennedy stopped in the kitchen to shake hands with Juan Romero, a busboy working at the hotel. Just then, Sirhan Sirhan, a Palestinian immigrant to the United States, stepped out from behind the ice machine and repeatedly shot Kennedy. Kennedy had been hit numerous times and lay on the ground mortally wounded, as the busboy cradled his head. Kennedy asked Romero, Is everybody okay? And Romero responded, Yes, everybody's okay. Kennedy then turned away and said, Everything's going to be okay. Friend and journalist Pete Hamill recalled that Kennedy had a kind of sweet accepting smile on his face, as if he knew it would all end this way. Kennedy had been shot three times, once in the head. Frank Mankiewicz left Kennedy's hospital and walked to the gymnasium where the press and news media were set up for continuous updates on the situation. At 2 a.m. on June 6, Mankiewicz approached the podium, took a few moments to compose himself, and made the official announcement. Senator Robert Francis Kennedy died at 1.44 a.m. today, June 6, 1968, with Senator Kennedy at the time of his death, where his wife, Ethel, his sisters, Mrs. Stephen Smith, Mrs. Patricia Lawford, brother-in-law, Mr. Stephen Smith, his sister-in-law, Mrs. John F. Kennedy. He was uh, 42 years old. Hubert Humphrey, the vice president, would go on to win the Democratic nomination. He would lose to Richard Nixon by a short margin of 0.7% of the popular vote, ending the over 30-year New Deal coalition in the Democratic Party, leading to a new era of American politics dominated by the Republican Party, who would go on to win five of the six next elections. The bright optimism of the 1960s, started by Robert Kennedy's brother, John Kennedy, when he won the election of 1960, promising to usher in a youthful new age in America, gearing towards a brighter future, seemed to be over. Juan Romero, the busboy who shook hands with Kennedy right before he was shot, later said, It made me realize that no matter how much hope you have, it can be taken away in a second. 
Jack Newfield, a reporter who had been traveling with the campaign, expressed his feelings on the effects of the assassination, closing his memoir on Kennedy with, Now I realize what makes our generation unique, what defines us apart from those who came before the hopeful winter of 1961 and those who came after the murderous spring of 1968. We are the first generation that learned from experience in our innocent 20s that things were not really getting better, that we shall not overcome. We felt by the time that we had reached 30 that we had already glimpsed the most compassionate leaders our nation could produce, and they had all been assassinated. And from this time forward, things would get worse. Our best political leaders were part of a memory now, not hope. The stone was at the bottom of the hill, and we were all alone. At his eulogy, his younger brother, Ted Kennedy, gave this speech. Love is not an easy feeling to put into words, nor is loyalty or trust or joy. But he was all of these. He loved life completely, and he lived it intensely. What he leaves to us is what he said, what he did, and what he stood for. A speech he made to the young people of South Africa on their day of affirmation in 1966 sums it up the best, and I would like to read it now. There is discrimination in this world and slavery and slaughter and starvation. Governments repress their people. Millions are trapped in poverty while the nation grows rich and wealth is lavished on armaments everywhere. These are differing evils, but they are the common works of man. They reflect the imperfection of human justice, the inadequacy of human compassion, our lack of sensibility towards the suffering of our fellows. But we can perhaps remember, even if only for a time, that those who live with us are our brothers, that they share with us the same short moment of life, that they seek as we do, nothing but the chance to live out their lives in purpose and happiness, winning what satisfaction and fulfillment they can. Surely this bond of common faith, this bond of common goal, can begin to teach us something. Surely we can learn, at least to look at those around us as fellow men. And surely we can begin to work a little harder to bind up the wounds among us and to become in our own hearts brothers and countrymen once again. Like it or not, we live in times of danger and uncertainty. But they are also more open to the creative energy of men than any other time in history. All of us will ultimately be judged. And as the years pass, we will surely judge ourselves on the effort we have contributed to building a new world society and the extent to which our ideals and goals have shaped that event. Our future may lie beyond our vision, but it is not completely beyond our control. It is the shaping impulse of America that neither fate nor nature, nor the irresistible tides of history, but the work of our own hands, matched to reason and principle, that will determine our destiny. There is pride in that, even arrogance, 
but there is also experience and truth. And in any event, it is the only way we can live. That is the way he lived. That is what he leaves us. My brother need not be idealized or enlarged in death beyond what he was in life. To be remembered simply as a good and decent man who saw wrong and tried to right it, saw suffering and tried to heal it, saw war and tried to stop it. Those of us who loved him and who take him to his rest today pray that what he was to us and what he wished for others will someday come to pass for all the world. As he said many times in many parts of this nation, to those he touched and who sought to touch him, some men see things as they are and say why. I dream things that never were and say why not. Kennedy was buried at Arlington National Cemetery near his brother. A memorial installed on the site in 1971 included passages from his improvised speech in Indianapolis on the night that King was killed. Robert Francis Kennedy would have been 95 years old today. Martin Luther King Jr. would have been 92. John F. Kennedy, 103. The nation is sick, trouble is in the land, confusion all around. That's a strange statement. But I know somehow that only when it is dark enough can you see the stars. I wanted to thank and give credit to YouTubers Mohammed Azam and Conrad Boyner for making the videos of RFK and Ted Kennedy with the background music. I shamelessly stole it from them because I decided there was no way I could make a better combination. So thanks Mohammed Azam and Comrade Boyner for these masterpieces. And go subscribe and check out their videos if you like.